This is Joel Spolsky, the host of the Stack Overflow podcast. Our podcast depends on listeners like you, who aren't you because you're already listening, and we need more listeners like you. We don't have any kind of fancy marketing budget, so please, if you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you. Wait, I'm sorry. You've said two new and interesting things this week on top of the normal routine, and one is, I think I'm over the flu, and two is Alana <laughs> and I are sharing a microphone. No, I'm definitely over the flu. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'd say if I were making someone share a microphone with me. I like that face, Alana. Every time Jess leans in really close to the microphone, <laughs> Alana tries not to react with anything but a slight twitch of her eyes. And like, anymore, st- like her I'm body starts moving and then she's anymore. like, no, I shouldn't move away. That would be rude. And just like she just like silently tenses up and her eyes activate as she tries to be super polite. I'm not sick anymore, I promise. <laughs> it's really magical. This is the Stack Overflow Podcast, episode 118, recorded Thursday, October 5th, 2017, at Stack Overflow headquarters in New York City, where more than 8 million people live in peace and enjoy the benefits of democracy. New York streets aren't really lined with gold, but each block is lined with at least one Dwayne Reed, one Starbucks, and roughly seven banks. Today's <laughs> podcast is brought to you by Oracle. Stack Overflow appreciates Oracle's support for this podcast and for our community. Learn more about all the ways Oracle supports open source, Java, and developers like you at oracle.com slash developers. And the pasta arm, an amazing articulating faucet that sits right over your oven range. You'll never have to carry a full pot of water from your sink to the stove again. Sure, you'll still have to carry it back to the sink and, you know, when it's full of boiling water, but by the time you realize that, you'll have already committed to an irreversible plumbing project. <laughs> On today's <laughs> podcast, we have our usual crew, CTO David Fullerton. Hi. News editor, Ilana Yatsaki. Hello, everyone. Producer, Jess Pardue. Hiya. We're excited to have Adam Lear and Jeremy Banks, two of our very own developers who were also both elected volunteer moderators on the site before they worked here. Welcome, Adam and Jeremy. Hello. Hi, everyone. And joining us here live in the studio, we have Wojciech Boykowski, co-founder of FlightFox, and Todd Sullivan, co-founder and CEO of FlightFox. Welcome to the program, gentlemen. Hello. Hi, awesome to be here. Joel Spolsky is still out working on his side project, Namcoin, the first blockchain currency you mine by playing Dig Dug. Which makes me your host, Jay Hanlon, <laughs> VP and General Manager of Stack Overflow, and occasional stunt double for ALF. Welcome back, everyone. <laughs> wow. Thanks, thanks. Wow is really the best I hope for most weeks, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so much impressed, but it's not like disgust. It's not, not revile. You know, it's, it's, it's bad. It could be worse. It could be worse. How is everybody? Sorry, you mentioned one of our sponsors, the pasta arm. I always thought those things were called pot fillers. As it was explained to me, mine was described as a pasta arm, and I'm like, that is the best. I can't believe, I was like, I was schlepping around a house with buckets, or I was like Mickey in the Fantasia thing, like that's, yeah, yeah, but yeah, never yeah. again. You know, an empty, easy to move pot, and then you use it once, and you're like, wait, now it's full of boiling. Still have to go the other it way. solves that's the a like, great point. easy half that is not that important, and don't buy one. I don't recommend them to I mean, I didn't buy it. It was there. I'm going to pass this along to my wife because we're redoing our kitchen and she keeps asking me where her pot filler is. It seems super fancy, but it really is solving the easiest problem of the whole process. I do not recommend it to a friend. And that is not an official <laughs> tech review, but, you know. So this is just the faucet that goes above the stove to easily fill a pot. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's a special little arm that comes out above the stove that you can use. To fill a pot. And they're like all the rage in high-end kitchens now. But I like Jay's point that they don't actually solve the, nope. the hardest part nope. of the problem. Nope, not that valuable. There's a picture of one. We'll link in the show notes so you can figure out where you should not buy one. <laughs> Wouldn't it just be easier to have one of those faucets that move from the sink? Like a hose? Yeah, with yeah. a hose. But what if your sink is... My sink is like six feet away from my stove. Oh, that would be a long hose. Oh, specifically so you can fill it on the stove. It is so like you a don't single have to use... move. So you don't have to lug the right. pot around. Single, single temperature use plumbing faucet. fixture. I don't, know if it's, maybe, I don't know if it's temperature or not. That is dumb. Right over the stove. I mean, if you can't lift things, and but you want to have pasta. What do you do at the end? But Jay's point is that or it, you can get it, it out of the pot the without second... lifting. I don't know. But oh. yeah, I guess at some point you will have to dump I, it out. You need like a hose that does like suction to suck the water back out. Right. Then you could solve both well, problems. Well, why don't they have a pot that has the colander in it already so that it's cooking in the colander and then you just pick the colander up and it doesn't take any of the water with it. And then Ooh. you just use a different pot every time and eventually you, in a second stove and like all of them are covered with pots full of water. 
We need a metal version <laughs> of like that thing at the ball stadium where they put the cup down and the beer comes in from the bottom. Like that's where we're headed, I think, with all this. <laughs> Alana, you have you seen this? Oh no. yeah, yeah. They they're like these weird special cups, and they jam them on a thing, and then it fills up with beer from the bottom, and they just hand it to you. What if it was just a pasta dispenser? Forget, <laughs> skip all the water. You just pull the handle and pasta comes out. This podcast is brought to you by Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> and inane inventions. All right, well, let's get on to the good stuff. Our dev story. And today, our listeners get two, not one, but two dev stories for the price of one, or at least two stories. We are excited today to have with us the co-founders of Flight Fox. As we mentioned before, we have Todd, the CEO and co-founder. Todd, I understand that you led software teams for the Department of Defense and Defense Contractors in Australia, and then a private equity firm, which is finance, which I'm familiar with, before founding your first tech startup. So basically, you're like one of those people who like worked for like evil and then has escaped and is doing something to delight and make people's lives better. Yeah, pretty much. So I grew up in the capital of Australia, which is Canberra, and similar to Washington or, say, Ottawa in Canada, most of the jobs around there are government-based or defence-based. And at that age, you don't really think about the evil. You just think, who's doing the coolest stuff in this area? Well, it's those guys in that building. And sure, it has no windows, but that's not a problem. <laughs> Let's just go there anyway. And what could we get wrong? Exactly. And so tip off. that's how I got started in tech. For what it's worth, I didn't really mean that I believe it is necessarily evil, but I appreciate you either agreeing or accepting the premise in any case. So I'm just interested in like, what were the secret things you worked on there? Well, <laughs> on, just back to that evil point, it was quite interesting <laughs> that one day, you know, we're just working on different projects. We're working on a GIS project and then we're all called into the boardroom and the CEO of the company said, Look, everyone, today there might be some picketing outside. One of our bombs has landed in a marketplace and the media is saying it's ours. And it was at that point that I realized, wait a sec, I'm working for a defense company and that's the reality and we're going to have people picketing outside. And then after that, people would ask me about it. And it does play on your mind a little, even if you're not working on that sort of project. Wow. Yeah. We sometimes make mistakes here too. And people often tell us very clearly they don't like our blog post. They found it really, really unpleasant. They disagree strongly. It's a different kind <laughs> of problem. Just a little. But yeah, to answer your question, I worked on GIS projects, some uh, tracking before our RFID was around. We're doing pocket PC development on little mobiles. Sure. It looked like an iPhone, but wasn't an iPhone back then. Was that Compaq or that was the iPad? Windows. Compaq the iPad. The Windows. Exactly. And they were color and big. They were yeah. like hefty because they were, it's like they, post Palm Pilot, right? That era, like just after that? I believe so. Yeah. Around that same era. Actually quite similar to an iPhone, but with a stylus. Mm -hmm. It had apps and yeah, we're talking 15, 17 years ago. That long ago? That saddens me <laughs> Ancient, <slightly>. ancient history. <laughs> Pre-iPhone. Yeah, everyone in this room's like, I wonder what that was like. I was in fifth grade and I'm like, I'd had a job for nine years. <laughs> <laughs> And Wojciech, so your co-founder responsible for growth and enterprise. So tell us what that means. So I didn't found FlightFox with Todd and Lauren. I joined later. I joined the team as a late co-founder. How does late co-founder work? Basically, I got my equity, but I didn't start the company. Got it. <laughs> the best so, of both worlds right yeah, there. Yeah, so I'm going to start describing myself as, I'm going to say like, you know, I, I wasn't that Columbus guy, but I consider myself a late co-founder of the United States, basically. <laughs> yeah. um, plus, I didn't steal it from somebody, so that's also better. Sorry, I cut you off. Go on. Yeah, so I started with FlightFox being one of the flight experts, and this is when we were in, in the consumer market. So uh, as you probably, some of you might know, we have pivoted to enterprise. So currently FlightFox helps companies like Stack Overflow to handle their business travel to book flights and hotels, book much nicer flights and much better hotels and save you a ton of money. And when we made that switch from individual travel to enterprise travel, I joined the company to work on growth and on sales. So currently I'm mostly involved in, in contacting new potential clients and explaining to them why FlightFox is the best corporate travel tool in the world. Awesome. Have you met our people? In person? Yeah. We can introduce you. Anyway, talk our listeners who are not familiar. So is flight hacking still the right term? Yeah, travel hacking is what travel a hacking. lot of people call okay. it. For enterprise, it's not so black hat or gray hat. It has to be white hat. <laughs> That's what I'd say if I were selling it. Sure. Exactly, okay. <laughs> exactly. So just repeating that. So um, a lot of it has to do with credit card miles, with airline status, with hotel points and status, and just maximizing value. 
and using a lot of little tricks along the way to fly a lot better and travel a lot better for less. So tell us, if you don't mind, from this kind of travel hacking community and this sort of practice, how did the first version start and then what's it evolved to today? So the first version started, it's a, a quite a long story, but basically knowing that people were doing this out there and knowing that our friends were flying business class for less than we were paying for economy. Give me an example. Like, how does that happen? Because I always fly economy and I don't love it, to be honest. Yeah, much, well, so. there are lots of different ways. So one is using miles. Sure. Another one might be buying the miles and using them. So let's just say United sells their miles instead of spending $4,000 on business class return to Tokyo, buy the miles off them, you redeem them and save, say, 50, 60, 70%. That's one, but there are many, many ways. And that's why we thought we can't do this purely with software. We need humans involved because the humans need to learn every day about all the tricks that have closed and opened up again and do that for customers. And that's basically FlyFox. And it almost seems like there's, tell me if I'm understanding right, but there's sort of a set of things that feel like they could be inputs to an algorithm, right? Like at any given time, you can trade X miles for Y seats or Z dollars, except because it's a service business and one that's constantly adjusting on the fly, what you sort of have is like at any given time, there's a promotion that they'll take a certain thing in a certain context, but not another. And there's people who know that either you have humans who can test it and call. So I guess there's discussions happening on all these points guy and the flyer talk and all these places. And the stack travel form oh, our as travel well. Site. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, I got a lot on that site. I don't travel a lot, but I looked at when I was going to Saudi, I found stuff. Did they talk about points optimization and stuff on there? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, awesome. They talk about everything. And then a few of the moderators there are either X or current flight hackers for us. Huh. Awesome. That's super cool. And so initially when you did this, you're offering to consumers basically. Yes. And what was that model like? Like how did that work or not work since you've shifted? Exactly. So it was competitive crowdsourcing. So let's just say you want to flight to Tokyo. You would put that request up and then these experts would compete against each other and you would choose the one you liked the most, either it saved the most money or got you in business class, and that person would get paid a fee. That's how it originally worked. And the consumer, so I'm trying to fly to Tokyo and I want to figure out if I can get a better deal. And so I post a thing. It's almost like a 99designs kind of model, right? Exactly. It's like a contest where people are submitting qualitative work and you pick one. And then people submit and then I think one is best. And so... Did I agree to pay someone when I signed up or do I pay if I, f how does it work? So you may have put a quote up front. Okay. Like 99designs, you offer a, bounty, exactly. a reward, a bounty kind of thing. And some criteria, maybe you only want one stop. Yep. Maybe it has to be a maximum of five hours. You put that request up, you commit to the fee up front. Yep. And then as long as someone beats that quote within your criteria, then they get the fee. Got it. So you're committed to paying somebody who beats that. You can pick from anyone who's met the criteria and then they get a flat fee. Yes. Cool. But you had to sell it to individuals one at a time who were probably consistently actually net saving money, but first had to commit to paying money in a new way, which people don't like to do. Exactly. Yeah. And we got over that hurdle and we generated a lot of money with that model. But with these flight hackers and travel hackers, they know many, many things spanning miles and hotels and airlines. But for a consumer, they really just want to save a few hundred dollars. Our pivot to enterprise let the flight hackers really flex their muscles and use everything they know. So companies have 5 million Amex points sitting there. They have elite status with the hotels. They have all of the stuff that our hackers have, whereas consumers typically didn't have that. And that drove a lot of the pivot. We could create a lot more value for enterprising. It's like you've got this expert who's like, I can be your specialized consultant. But most of your people come up to you and they're like, I have a two by four and a hammer. What can you do? And now you're dealing with a company and they have like a warehouse full of lumber and all the tools. They're like, what can you do? But you can really leverage all that expertise. That's really interesting. There's a huge difference of what you can do at scale. And a lot of this isn't happening in enterprise now. So none of the competitors are really looking at your Amex miles and maximizing those. And that's why we're trying to differentiate using what we learned in consumer travel. There's a funny thing I find with air travel in particular, there's a weird thing where like if you talk to consumers, individual consumers, what they constantly bemoan is like, I can't believe the airlines are nickel and diming me. Like, how come now the cheapest class does not allow me to like have a pillow or not be standing for the whole flight? This is an outrage. And I think we all feel that way. I find it increasingly unpleasant. However, the answer is because you'll keep picking the cheapest one no matter what we do there. Like at the end of the day, most airline consumers are insanely price sensitive and insanely like amenity insensitive. They just ignore it. And then they're mad. Uh, I'm mad. I don't like it. Exactly. And the airlines are typically low margin as well. So 
they're trying to run a business, they're trying to maximize their revenue and they're doing it and they're finding every which way to get the consumer to spend more. They're taking things away and getting them to spend more to have them back as the latest trend. So now when a company uses you today, is it the same model? Like I assume it's less auctiony or I guess I shouldn't assume. Yeah, no, no, you're exactly right. So no more competitive crowdsourcing, more collaboration. And that's where we use a lot of Trello and HipChat. So the experts all collaborate together rather than competing in it. It's just a nicer place to be before they wouldn't share tricks. Right. And so the body of knowledge between all of them was much less before than it is now. And these guys, you know, they come from all walks of life. They travel the world. These experts, they meet up with each other. They share tricks now and they do travel for companies. And like, how does the company model work? Is it like a seat where they have access? Is it per flight or per trip? It's per trip. Per trip. It just seems to be the easiest way for now. That might change in future, but it's just easy to scale that way. Well, it's lower commitment. And assuming you've got a product that you think use makes people want more, right? It's a good model. Like you try it as a one-off, it works, you buy it again. Like that's particularly good when you can offer a value add that others can't. Yes. I've used it on several different occasions. Have? Oh, yeah. And it'd be super funny if you were like, it sucked and didn't work on the podcast. Like, that would be a very surprising and awkward moment. No, no. That's how they came on the podcast. Actually, Joel was the one that let me know how awesome they were. And he actually really likes Flight Fox. Wait, Joel likes Flight Fox? Yeah, Joel likes Flight Fox. Many people think oh, of Joel you know as the good. CEO of Stack Overflow or, you know, one of the co-founders of Trello or Fog Creek. But really, his only true passion is everything about airlines. So that is, oh. that is truly a deep and heartfelt endorsement. He's a... I call it an obsession. Yeah, hardcore passion. airline travel nerd. But yeah, I've used it on several different occasions and we're kind of like soft rolling it out to like some people here using it. Awesome. And so if you want to use it, let me know. Wait, I, I don't want to be in the coach anymore. Do that thing where I get the nice stuff. But the coolest thing about it is it's high touch. You have a human that you're talking to. I basically just tell them, like, here's where I need to go. Here's where I need to get there. I'd like to do it for under this amount of money. And one of the reasons it's so hard for us to find a company that could do this for us is because we're a little more generous than other companies in what we allow. And, like, if you can go somewhere on a Saturday that is cheaper than flying in on a Sunday, then we'll pay for the extra hotel night if it makes sense, you know, and you can't really do that with Orbit's business or something right. like that unless you do it yourself. But you tell that to your flight hacker person, your travel hacker, and they're like, okay, well, here's three itineraries. You can choose between it and this is how much money you'll save. It's pretty cool. And so what's the pricing like? So it's $30 for the search per trip and then $20 per person per destination. Sounds a little complex, works out about $50 a trip. We guarantee for the large customers to save that every month. End of the month, we give a long report, detail the savings for every trip. That's cool. And against retail prices, so not against a pie-in-the-sky price, right, against right. what's on Kayak, and we guarantee to save all the fees in those savings there. Right, so it's real value add, right? You're not pricing off like an MSRP. You're already taking an aggregator who's looked for the sort of, what's called readily available lowest price for the same thing. Yes, exactly. That's really cool. And the key there is really we need to maximize the expertise of the expert because if you're a road warrior, one of these guys that spends 200 days a year on the road and you talk to an expert and you seem like more of an expert than they do, it doesn't work. So that's a big reason we have this remote team. Our experts just travel constantly. Many have been to 50, 100 plus countries and that helps them really relate and talk to road warriors and salespeople who travel a lot. So speaking of that, Wojciech, you started out as one of the experts and it is my understanding you teach travel at university? So how does that work? Yeah, so I teach the black arts of travel. The black arts of travel. <laughs> I like this. I like this. So there's an event called Frequent Traveler University where a bunch of people that are really airline nerds and travel nerds come to learn more from different people. And I am one of those instructors. And this is actually the phrase that I heard after one of my events that someone said, this guy's really teaching some black arts of travel. I like it. <laughs> and I really love that. So I basically explained some really advanced techniques, how to take uh, advantage of the pricing, how airlines price tickets, and to get the lowest price or the, the best value when booking your flights. So like share one of your, uh, maybe not too proprietary, you don't want to give it all away, but what are some of the more surprising, like my favorite hotel hack, I don't know if this is still true, that's pretty well known now, is this thing where like you can't cancel a hotel reservation once it gets too close, but they'll reschedule it. 
And so once you learn this, it's like the night before, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to pay. And it's like, uh, could you reschedule for two weeks from now? And they're like, no problem. And you're like, can I cancel that? And they, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like that was like a worked around. What's one of your favorite? Yeah, so uh, this still works with United. If you book a flight with your frequent flyer points, if you book less than 21 days ahead, they add $80 just because it's a last minute flight. Mm -hmm. So you can do the same thing. You can book two months in advance and call them and say, hey guys, I need to change this ticket for tomorrow and you will not pay that fee. This is just an analogy to what you just said. But one example they really love is think when you book flights, you always want to be in a nonstop flight. Sure. So let's say you fly from Los Angeles to New York. Yeah, I'd want to get out of Los Angeles like super fast if I were there. <laughs> yes. That, that's one thing. But another thing, you don't want to stop in Detroit. No. Like, no, no offense. I do, no offense. No, but... I do not. <laughs> so you just want to fly nonstop. So airlines take advantage of that. So if you look at flights, you'll always see a flight that is nonstop, that is much more expensive because people are willing to pay more for flying nonstop. So you're flying to New York in business class, this will be $2,000 from Los Angeles because there's a lot of people flying to New York yep. and they are willing to pay that. But if you fly to Toronto, then Air Canada flies to Toronto. So they also sell this for $2,000 because this is a nonstop flight. But then you can fly from Los Angeles to New York to Toronto in business class for $800 because nobody wants to fly through New York when you actually need to fly to Toronto. Oh, it's almost entirely, it's demand-based pricing. So they're not pricing it off of what those things cost them. They will charge what is essentially a more expensive flight for them. The incremental cost to them is low enough in that yes. case. They're pricing off what you're willing to pay. That's Yes, wacky. so when you think about an airplane, there's on average 180 seats, and there's 180 Never people. Never thought about that before, but that sounds right. <laughs> and basically, there are no two people who paid the same price for a ticket. Like snowflakes. Yeah. <laughs> There's a snowflake model. So on a flight from New York to London, there are people who paid $100 for the seat up to $5,000 for the same seat, depending on when they booked, how long in advance, what other flights are on the reservation. So coming back to that example, if you want to fly from Los Angeles to New York, why don't you book a ticket from Los Angeles to Toronto and get off the plane in New York? And rather than paying $2,000, you just paid $800. That's crazy. That's really interesting. This is interesting. one simple example of what is flight hacking and what you can do if you know how this works, if you understand how airlines price their tickets. As long as you only have a carry-on, right? No, uh, yeah. So, yes. <laughs> so, basically, yes. Checking through. Yeah, that's a big issue there. So, airlines don't like you when you check through your bag. It messes up with their systems. They don't like it. But how about you fly to JFK and your flight to Toronto is from LaGuardia? So they have to give your bag right. back so you can spot oh, the airport. No airline will move your bags from one airport to another. So they will actually say, sir, you are obliged to pick up the bag. We cannot move the bag yeah. all the way to LaGuardia. They sure, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's super interesting. This, this is just one example of what can be done. But like many places, it's not that hard, especially for companies to recognize. It's just worth paying for someone who does something regularly to do it. But that's also a great example of where there's an expertise in there where like, you could give me all those tricks like that. I can't replicate it because what no. you still need is an expertise. Like you've got to know like, oh, if you wanted to get a place that occasionally has flights through that city, here's the city you'd pick to fly yeah. to. Like that requires more of that. You can eventually over time program some of that into a computer, but a layperson can't know the basic technique and just do it. It needs someone who really looks at this all day and thinks yep. that's really cool. That's really interesting. So Todd, you started as a programmer. How did you get started coding? What was kind of your first experience that got you excited about writing code? So. It would definitely be at university and just taking those subjects. When you're very young and you take some of those subjects, you gloss over them, just some of them catch. That was programming for me. And then working through defense and then thinking, uh, let's go and do this by myself. And so I started a little team and we had a consulting company and it just grew and grew from there. With that consulting company, we realized all of us coders had no idea how to run a business. And so then I went to university again to learn business, and that's how I ended up in private equity after that. So it was a little bit of a branch in the road, but then came back eventually with the startups. So you know what's interesting? I don't know if this is just sort of the people we have on, but we've asked a lot of people how they got started coding, and not probably a statistically relevant sample, but I think you're the first person who said, I got hooked on it at like a college. That's not a common answer, I think. Interesting. It's usually earlier or? Earlier or later. So yes, we've had yeah. people who were like, I really got into it as a kid and I was tinkering and then I studied in school or I didn't. We've had people who were like, I was doing this other thing and I hated it. And I was like, you know what? I saw like code could fix this problem. And so I wanted to go learn it or I wanted a second career. And so I taught myself or, and I'd say that's kind of consistent. Like 
I had a lot of friends who were CS majors in college. I don't know many who like tried it in college. They were almost all people who, if they took it in college, were super into it already or they all started later. Yeah, I think my original interest was business. And so I went to college for business and quickly I realized start a business, you need to build something. Thought, okay, now it's time to build something. Took a few <laughs> CS courses. Sneaks right up on you, doesn't it? Exactly. And just, and yeah, it went from there. Yeah. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about, you guys are an all remote company, is that right? So, and how many employees do you have? About 35. 35. Okay. So we're not all remote, but we've always been a remote first company. And so Joel and Jeff have been longtime proponents of sort of that remote model and talked about before why, why we believe in it and think it's awesome trade-offs. But what I'm interested more in, how do you guys make it work? So like, how do the teams communicate? What have you guys learned that helps remote work sort of gel and still be both efficient and kind of create the connections and bonds you need to do good work. When we started Flatfox, a lot of the reason for looking at a marketplace is we love the idea of creating freedom for people while paying them money to do some work as well. And that really carried across to the internal team as well. We wanted them to have that freedom. We wanted them to travel and do what the business did. And it all started from there. We didn't even consider at the beginning having an office. It was always about that ethos. We just learned after that. We used tools like Trello and HipChat and other collaboration tools. We went through problems with dealing with time zones. So a lot of remote teams will just be in three or so US time zones yeah. with people everywhere. And there are challenges with that. But I think if people are autonomous, you empower them to make their own decisions. You give them the right tools. You talk regularly. It works itself out. It's interesting. We did it from kind of that, you know, if you hire great people and you can basically just get better people, right, on some level because you're expanding the universe so broadly. It's interesting. You guys had a more fundamental challenge, like being a company that not only embraces, but literally like requires people to be constantly traveling like that, you know, you must be sitting at the mothership with your time where you can see it would not make any sense or really work at all, right? Yeah. And you had to make it work. So I'm intrigued. Have you found any hacks or tips on the time zone thing? What we've discovered mostly is we can have teams that spread out. David will correct me if this has changed or evolved, but like if you don't have a team that basically everyone is on for like half the day, it's brutal, almost unworkable. And so we've kind of gotten to where like you can have people spread out as long as they've got four hours shared or something. Is that still what we're doing or any of our devs here? I don't think anybody really holds it to like the four hour mark. Nobody sits there and like, you know, calculates like, oh, this person was in chat for four hours or doesn't I, I saw on the dashboard that you slept late yesterday and it threw everything <laughs> off. Like. Yeah, I mean, my personal goal is to get here by lunch. Uh, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> That's the secret dashboard, Jay. We don't talk oh. about that. Yeah, but that was definitely something that was brought up during the recent team changes is, you know, maybe we're not measuring every hour, but we're being mindful that there is at least some overlap. So how do you guys deal? Is yours problems, both hemispheres. We're usually dealing with half the world most of the time. Yeah, so we don't have defined teams because... Our people are changing countries so often, so those teams get mixed up. But, you know, we just use the tools. We have projects, people get their work done, and we have run into issues. But it's been a few years now. So we've been running like this for five years, and it, we almost don't think about it anymore. Maybe you'll want to hear from someone in a completely different time zone. One of our main people's in Australia right now. We just wait, and, and we quickly adapt. That's the key. Awesome. Anything else you guys want to specifically plug? Anything you want our listeners to know about, check out? Yeah, I think, you know, it'd be great for everyone to check out flightfox.com, especially if you do business travel and especially if you have a ton of credit card or airline miles, that's our specialty and we can really kick ass and save a lot of money with that. So if you're tired of sitting in the lousy seats and being beaten as you climb onto the plane, ask your administrative personnel or your office staff to check out flightfox at flightfox.com. Which brings us, of course, to the fake democracy portion of our podcast each week. As you loyal listeners know, or you new listeners are about to be totally confused by, we're preparing a fake constitution for Stack Overflow. And each week we bring a proposal that you, our listeners, will decide on to see if it becomes part of our new constitution. Last week's question came from Kevin Arve, that's at A-R-V-K-E-V-I on Twitter, in line at the supermarket, which customer is responsible for placing the divider bar between items? And in our discussion last week, pro was undefined, just like con was, because I am not very good at my job. 
We later clarified on Twitter that pro was that the person in front must put the divider there, while con was that they don't have to, because they're really the only decider. The person in back will have to do it if the person in front doesn't. So the question is, is it pro that if you're in front, you must put it, or con, it's not really your job? And here with the results from last week is our news editor, Ilani Itzaki. We are at 57% for pro. Interesting. Yeah. Close. I mean, one. it was pretty close. Yeah. Interesting. I'm surprised because Me too. in the studio, we were not anywhere close to 57. No, super con, except for Sid. And then Sid brought you over to the wrong side. So <laughs> it got a little closer, side. but. It's true. Maybe he persuaded a lot of listeners. Could be. He's a very persuasive guy. So that's weird. Yeah. And Corey Beaumont at Corey Beaumont, he said, Con, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Ah. Mm-hmm. The thing that bothers me, see, now it's going to bother me, is what if there's no one behind you? <laughs> What if there's no one there yet? Do you stick it there and like case? Well, we didn't clarify. But then you're not the person in front. You're just a person. It might not be until the person shows up and then you put it there. I have a lot of problems. You know what I think we need? What we need is an electoral college. So sometimes the way people vote doesn't work out the way they voted because sometimes they don't get it right. And (laughs) we could set up this. Never mind. Never mind. That idea might not be the best. I don't know. I don't try and stay out of politics except fake politics. Well, I guess the, the people have spoken. And in fact, I think that means we have a new thing on our bill of fake developer rights, but this will, I assume, be the Kevin Arve amendment to our constitution. And heretofore, all will follow it or face the wrath of the swift arm of justice. So that brings us to this week's proposal, which is, and I will flip it over to my friend and colleague, David, one must always use rebasing instead of merging branches in Git, where pro is rebasing is mandatory and con is no, merging would be better. But David, why don't you walk us through it? Okay, so this one comes from our own engineering team. This was a little bit of an internal debate. It's come up before, but it came up again last week because of, uh, it's a long story, but... This, by the way, I don't mean to cut you off, but this is the sign of like a healthy collaborative team, (laughs) that there's a disagreement, people have different views on how to do it, and you bring it to a giant public vote to settle the issue rather than working it throughout yourselves. That's Well, we settled it, but I won't say how. And, you know, we had to beat some people along the way. So let me just explain. So this is in Git. They say you're working in a branch. So you've got your master and then you're, you're working off on a branch. You're working on a feature or maybe you're just working locally. It's not even a real branch, but it's just your local branch. And now you want to merge it in. There are strong feelings on the right way to do that. So one school of thought says do just what Git calls a merge, which is in your Git history, you see the branch there and then you see where it came back in and there's a merge commit and that's how it gets back into master. The other school of thought is that's annoying. It creates a very confusing nonlinear history that's very hard to read. Instead, what you should do is rebase, which means you think of it as temporarily setting your changes aside, getting the latest, what everybody else has been writing, and then reapplying your changes on top of what they wrote. So does that make sense? You follow? Yeah, it's relevant when there were changes made to the thing you were working on while you were working on it, right? Yeah, so... Often there's not even a conflict. It's just you're checking in and somebody else checked in while you were working and then you want to add your check-ins in. And even if there's not a conflict, you still need to merge them back in. So yeah, it's relevant because you've got multiple people all editing the same body of work basically at the same time. So this is the question that we put to you, our dear listeners. Well, we have a lot of developers on today. Yes. Our opinions here, of course, do not determine the future of democracy. It's like the American Idol people. We just chit-chat, and then you do your thing. But we've got a number of developers here who should all weigh in on sort of what is correct and what's most infuriating about the other wrong position. (laughs) Well, the wrong position is wrong. Obviously. So that's the worst part about it. We name names here. We say which one's wrong. Okay, fine. Oh, I guess. No, I mean, I personally prefer rebasing, I think... Well, merging is wrong. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about what's wrong with the people who do it. No, okay, go on. Everything, everything. (laughs) Do we have another two hours? We can keep going. No, mostly it's actually, I've been in a situation before where I had to actually revert some changes with a merge commit in the way, and it was one of the most painful development experiences of my life. So yeah, avoid it like the plague. Okay, so that's one argument. It's really hard to go backwards to roll back changes. If you've got a clean commit history where everything is linear because you forced it to be it's much easier to roll back to previous points in time sanely do we have a counter argument in the room everyone just agrees with rebasing personally (laughs) i'm a merger all right now we've got a fight on our hands excellent but 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 
our team are all rebases, and that's why I'm not allowed to touch the code base anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, merging will sometimes give you more of the context that the original work was performed in, but I don't think it's worth the cost. I'd rebase. All right. Well, it sounds like we have a general consensus here that freebasing is super awesome. It's possible I misunderstood <laughs> what we're talking about. But in any case, what matters is what you, our listeners, decide. Not what do we think. What do you think? Post your answer to Twitter using the hashtag Stack Overflow Podcast with either pro or con and your explanation, which should be short and sassy like David isn't. And you can also submit your ideas for future constitutional amendments using the same hashtag, Stack Overflow Podcast, and your amendment may be featured on a future podcast and even named after you, like one was both this and last week, people. You could be that famous. So feel free to submit them, and please do submit your vote so we can officially change the world of development for the better. And with that, I am excited to turn to our very own guest this week. And so we were excited to have Adam Lear and Jeremy Banks on. I mean, I think obviously we were told neither of you were working on anything useful for the company. So we thought we'd bring in here and get something out of your time. Is that not why? That's not why. But we've been talking a little bit about the Stack Overflow experience and new users and various people's experiences. And one thing that I think is maybe unique is the wrong word, but unusual, at least in many ways in our structure is how much power in general the community has. Regular users, as they contribute, earn the right to do things that in many companies would be employees, right? Closing questions and cleaning things up and stuff. But even sort of sitting above those users, we have our elected moderators. And maybe one of you wants to share a little bit, how does that process work? Let's start there. Is how does one become, these are volunteer moderators on Stack Overflow. Uh, but how did you become a moderator? Well, by getting elected. <laughs> on a side like you Stack Overflow. You say it like it's obvious, but yeah. that's not, you know. We run periodic elections. Uh, when I say periodic, they're not really scheduled. It's more kind of on a need yep. basis. So when there comes a time that we think Stack Overflow needs more moderators, or the moderators tell us that they would like more help, or somebody just steps down and doesn't want to do it anymore, we run this election. killed or unable to perform their duties. That's yeah, sort of thing. yeah, ran over by a bus. That's why there's, what, 20 moderators now, I think? On Stack Overflow. Yeah, yep. on Stack, yeah, on Stack Overflow. A high bus factor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the election basically goes through three stages. The first one is nomination. People nominate themselves on the assumption that you kind of have to want to do this to yourself, at least a little bit. And after that, on Stack Overflow, because it's big, there's a primary stage where people just vote straight up, up or down. Top 10 people make it through to the final stage, which is the actual election. And we use STV as our vote mechanism. That's a single transferable vote. So basically, you vote for the top three people that you want to do the job. And if one of you people gets either elected or eliminated, your votes cascade down that priority list and get assigned to other people. And each of the candidates has to write a little length-limited nomination post. But on Stack Overflow, because it's so large and there's so much responsibility, we also have a community-driven Q&A where the moderators each answer the same set of questions. Or at least we recommend they do. It's not mandatory, and sometimes people don't. And that gives a lot more insight into their opinions on moderating and responsibilities and you know what amount of time they can commit and that sort of stuff. I assume those blurbs are generally like, I'll make recess twice as long and everyone will have strawberry milk at lunch. It varies. Some okay. of them are more like that and some of them are more serious. Inevitably, there's at least one joke one every time and we have to pull it back. And eventually we just decided to hire you, Adam, so that would stop annoying everybody. Yeah. So <laughs> one thing that I found interesting, we were chatting about this a while back, I was writing something and I tried to find the other places that do elections like this. And what I discovered was this is very unusual. Like most of the sites that do need moderation either hire people at a kind of senior level, or in some cases they're volunteers, but they tend to be appointed or kind of raise their hand, the company picks. Going through this sort of kind of formal election process is fairly rare. I think Wikipedia is the only other site I've found of any significant size that has something vaguely resembling this process. Places like Reddit appoint people or hire them. So tell me, I'm really intrigued, what made you two interested in doing this? Like, What was your motivation when you thought I'm going to volunteer and see if I can get this gig. Well, for me, I first joined Stack Overflow, I don't know, 2008, something like as that. As a user, for clarity. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, just as a user. And I actually didn't really use it all that much. And then the site, formerly known as Programmer Stack Exchange, was created. And that's the one that I actually really got into because it was more kind of talking about the practices of building software as opposed to specific code type stuff. Slightly higher level of abstraction, right? In the... Yeah, yeah. At least that was sort of 
kind of the intent. There's a lot of history with that side that just really not <laughs> worth getting into. But <laughs> I was there when it was in public beta. And right as it was graduating, the first kind of round of moderators was going to be elected there. And so that's kind of where I actually nominated first because, you know, that was my site. And yeah, I got elected, did that for about 10 months. And by nature of the site, it actually works very closely with Stack Overflow. Sure. I was working very closely with Stack Overflow at the time. And so when Stack Overflow elections were up, I kind of thought about it and I went, you know what, it would be really helpful to have at least one person who's a moderator on both. Because that would actually simplify a lot of things, both in terms of the relationship between the two sites and the relationship between the uh, site's users. So that's how I, you know, nominated on Stack Overflow and then eventually got elected. What, so what made, you, what made you excited to do it on programmers? The site was actually going through a lot of kind of definition at the time and redefinition of what the scope was going to be. And because I spent so much time there to begin with, I really wanted to help kind of shape that direction and help uh, actually put whatever policies were decided on into action. That's really cool. So Jeremy, how about in your case, what made you interested in what kind of led you to becoming a moderator on Stack Overflow? Yeah, like Adam, I've been on the site since 2008. And I always, you know, was sort of fascinated by the way it was run by the community. But you know, we all have our own opinions on how certain issues should be run. And I sort of got interested in meta and then in nominating for moderation, because I wanted to, you know, have more of a say in these issues and, you know, make myself heard. And also thought that I could really help out on some of them. But I have to admit, I also had an ulterior motive to become a moderator, which is that I wanted to look for security vulnerabilities in the moderator tools, which was <laughs> fun. Wow. That, well, hold on. That is dedication. The attack is coming from inside the house. You got yourself elected as a moderator in order to look for security vulnerabilities? This is like that guy in prison break who robbed a bank to get into the jail to break out of the jail. You're basically that guy. That is amazing. It was, yeah, let's just say, a, a secondary motivation. <laughs> Wow. And have you breached all of our security? Well, you're in our security hall of fame, are you not? Yeah, I was in there a couple of times. Yeah. But I have to say, I think we do things a lot better these days. You know, the early days of the site, it was a little sloppier, but we're pretty good now. So to our listeners, what do moderators do here? Because one of the things that always strikes me is sometimes what people are assume are moderator responsibilities or who are moderators is actually off versus the reality. But what differentiates mods? What do they do that's different than, say, a power user? Well, the key differentiator, I guess, there's two. One is moderators have access to a lot more information, both about the users and about the posts and post history. We preserve almost anything, any edit, any sort of action that happens on a post is recorded and moderators can see a lot of it, with the exception of things like votes. And the other key difference is that most of the actions that moderators can take are binding. They take effect immediately. So it takes out a lot of, I guess, wait time. For certain things, like if there's a question that's off topic and it needs to be closed, it normally takes five regular users to vote to do that. But a moderator can do it with a single vote. But is that moderator's primary responsibility to close things? Like what are the main things that moderators are doing to serve the site that differ from what other users are doing? The idea is that moderators are empowered to handle exceptional cases, something that the community cannot or occasionally will not. But, you know, that is a bit of a gray area there. I will not do. So they're able to step in for, well, anything urgent. Adam was talking about how, you know, moderators have access to a lot more information that regular users can't see. Yep. And that could include things like, you know, users' past interactions on the site. Like if you're really active in a tag, you might know that the same user keeps coming back and is being a problem. But if you're not a regular user, you won't be able to see that. Whereas a moderator can see all the users' deleted posts or deleted comments, any interactions they've had with moderators in the past. So it's often a case that users will see and report something that's suspicious to them, but they can't see the full story. And a moderator will be able to do a deep dive in the issue, find the context, you know, maybe cross-reference IPs if necessary, and, you know, come to the root of the situation. Yeah, the site's designed in a lot of ways, I think, to try to allow crowdsourcing, right? And it's kind of classic sense of lots of people get together and they collectively decide, like, we kind of, we want to do things this way. We want this kind of question. It can be crowdsourced well. But then there's these other issues where it's more like there's something going off, something going wrong. There's a problem either on a thing we've decided before or just a general rule, like being civil in certain ways, or there's a new problem. And it's like, you don't want that to necessarily be the crowd, like right now interacting on this, who's caught up to the side. And much what the moderators are doing is responding to flags, right? Where like one user said, hey, this is a problem, like something's wrong here. And you want someone with sort of a higher level of ownership and responsibility 
who can then decide like, oh yeah, we got to do something. I've always been struck the amount of personal kind of responsibility the moderators take. Um, they tend to be people that were very committed and cared a lot. But one thing I've observed a lot is you'll see a user who was a great contributor, really active, almost all of them were, but you know, a little rough, a little bit, could be cantankerous, could be grumpy, and they get elected moderator. And occasionally, you know, if we're being honest behind the scenes, we're like, oh, that person's like, they're such a good giver, but they're a little mean. They don't mean to be, they just don't. And what you see almost, almost across the board, incredibly consistently, there's a real sense of responsibility. People who become mods, I think, I don't know, I've been struck by, we get great people, but also sounds like, I don't know, a little bit overreaching, but like, it's like the role makes them feel, I don't know, more, more responsible to, to look out for people, sort of. So I, I want to ask if you guys thought you were bigger or smaller jerks as a result of being elected. I was going to say, I'm like right here in the room <laughs> as you're going through that whole bit. Like I said, not everyone gets better when they're elected, just most of them. <laughs> but in the role, what were some of the most interesting observations? What was sort of most fulfilling or most annoying, most surprising? What stood out to you guys in that role? I think it was kind of interesting that, I mean, you'd get the user who you'd message about, you know, them being a little unpleasant or whatever. You know, of course, you get the users who just lash out at you and swear and whatever. But you'd actually pretty often get users who were apologetic about their behavior and, you know, seemed somewhat remorseful, and they would actually change their behavior. And a lot of the times, you know, you just see an action in isolation and someone might seem really nasty. But even if you just point that out to them, not always, but often you can just see a change. And it's really nice to see that. Yeah, I guess overall, I think what Jeremy was saying earlier, too, is moderators end up dealing with a lot more kind of people problems. Yeah. And not necessarily just the technical aspects of site stuff. So there's an interesting thing where like when you're in the moment, you're arguing with someone on the site, there's a sense of like this person is incorrigible and there's no point. For those of you that have kids, you'll have this moment where you're like, why is this child behaving this way? And you're like, what? The 19th time I've told you, you're sort of losing it. And they'll be like, I'm so sorry. I just wasn't listening because I was thinking about that apple yesterday and the apple wasn't as red as the one before it. And like, there's this moment where you're like, you just step out of that. Like, why did I think they were the bad guy? First of all, they're two, but it's that most people here want to do the right thing, I think. Well, tell us when mods have questions about what to do. Tell us a little bit about how the mods interact and draw on each other's resources. On Stack Overflow in particular, most sites actually follow this, but on Stack Overflow, moderators have their own dedicated chat room that they use. And there's also a chat room for moderators that's shared across the network. What's that one called? I love it. The this. Teacher's Lounge. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Darn kids. Yeah, so moderators tend to kind of their first resource is usually other moderators. And yeah, Stack Overflow ended up with an active dedicated room in part because there's just a lot of moderators and also a lot of activity. So that there actually was a time before that room existed. And sometimes the teacher's lounge was just basically Stack Overflow nonstop. And it was hard for anybody else to kind of get a word in about their problems. And then we have a whole dedicated community team of people who work with the moderators, handle cases that further need to be escalated up kind of above what a moderator can do for whatever reason, and just generally kind of guide and provide assistance handling specific issues. Just so everyone knows, it's like one of those companies where before you can be CEO, you have to like work every job at the company. So you really understand like that whole like Japanese Toyota thing or whatever. Adam was a moderator. Adam was also a community manager and Adam is now a developer. Joel said he wants to talk to me about my job and some change involving Adam next week. And I don't know what it's about, <laughs> but I'm a little nervous. So I, one thing I just want to say is the moderator force here sort of, so there's, we say there's about 20 on Stack Overflow right now? Something like that, I think. And I think we've got probably roughly 400 across the network. I actually just saw this number. And one thing that really jumps out again, these are volunteer roles. And a lot of it is, it's escalated issues. People like to say, oh, it's a janitorial role. I think when their moderators are kind of feeling underappreciated, but that's not fair. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of, to Jeremy's point, teaching, sort of helping people kind of redirect in a way that's not more confrontational than needed. But it really is a volunteer job that is not, thankless is the wrong word, but there's nothing baked in where there's people like all the time, like, great job, man, thank you. Like you're dealing with a lot of problem situations. And I am consistently blown away. We have moderators who do this on a bunch of sites. We have people, most of the mods put in many, many, many hours. I think we found the average was over 15 hours a week of just straight up volunteer time. And we have, I can name some of it. There's moderators like Chris Aff who do it on like six sites, right? And people on, on many sites, there's, there's a mod or two who really handle a ton of it. But it's an insane amount of just sort of higher level donating. And so I'm not going to thank you guys because now you get paid money here. But uh, I still thank you for There's a lot of volunteer time there. And one of the things I think we're looking at now on the DAGS team's priorities, developer affinity and growth, Joe was on recently, is doing, a, I think, a better job than we've done in the past at trying to make sure 
we are understanding the moderator challenges and baking those in more to other changes we're making. Some of the recent changes we're looking at, and I think soon to roll out, created some moderator complications that were totally valid, and the team's working on adjusting and fixing some stuff, at least in their experience, make it work better for them. And I think we have to be more disciplined about that because they give so much. So numbers, 557 moderators on the network. Wow. Wow. Looks like 24 on Stack Overflow. I was close. Yeah, that's amazing. Just amazing. All right. Anything you guys want to highlight or plug, just things you enjoy or causes you want to point our listeners to or close this should buy? <laughs> I don't know. I've been talking to anybody who would listen about Oryx and Crake and how it's a great book. So uh, read that one. Wait, what's it? say it again. Oryx and Crake, Margaret Atwood. I actually just read that and it is a good book, but it's also super bleak. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's, it's Margaret uh, Atwood. This is by the same person as the, uh, what's the, what's Handmaid's the TV Tale. show everybody's watching now? Oh. Handmaid's Tale. It is not at all like Handmaid's Tale, except that it is a super bleak vision of the future of humanity. So, oh, yeah. Margaret Atwood, right? Okay. Extremely well written and really interesting book. It's actually a trilogy. The other two are also pretty interesting. But... I couldn't even bring myself to read the follow-ups because I was like, this was good, <laughs> but I'm just depressed. Yeah, you got to take a breather, you know, maybe read a palate cleanser in between. I think Handmaid's Tale is the first book since Lord of the Rings when I've been like, what you should do is not read that book and go watch the movie TV thing instead. Because I found <laughs> Handmaid's Tale to be a brilliant sort of dystopian, disturbing vision. It was really smart. It was really thought-provoking. But I was kind of like, a little slow, and I wish I hadn't read it. And then the show was great. I See, loved it. I thought the exact same thing about that book. And then I started thinking about it from the point of view of the character, how all she does is kind of sit and wait all the time. And so I felt like the book was... I don't know if it was intentionally trying to approximate that experience and make the reader feel that way, but that was the only way I could get through it. I agree with you. It's super, it's like you watch Black Swan and you're like, yep, it could not have been a more perfectly crafted metaphor and arc of like suffering and insanity and like self-inflicted brutality. I just wish it happened to someone else. Like very smart, but no fun to do. How about you, Jeremy? Anything you want to- If you want something lighter to read, uh, I finished <laughs> recently reading The Goblin Emperor, which was a Hugo nominee a couple of years ago. It's sort of medieval coming-of-age story and court politics and stuff. It's pretty fun. Sounds like a lot lighter than what you're talking about. And my first question with anything science fiction fan is, is it part of a long series? No, it's a standalone All book. Right. And I found it sort of wrapped up pretty satisfyingly. It didn't leave me, like, you know, hungering for more. In a good way, you know. I don't want to give any spoilers, but do basically all humans in the entire world end up dying? There are no humans. Oh, <laughs> oh they're so far ahead of you, David. <laughs> oh, wow. Who's the author of that, Jeremy? Sarah Manette. Excellent. Well, you wait, heard... No, that's not right. Google... There's two... Wait, there's two different books by this name. Oh, goodness. Google gave oh, me no, the wrong no, snippet. There's two... No, no, it's one person who writes under two names. There's a real name and a pseudonym. Ah, all right. That's what's throwing me. Real name is Sarah Monette. Pseudonym is Catherine Addison. I don't know why. Have her on the show to ask why she writes under a pseudonym. Well, when we have our goblin-focused episode, we will have her on. <laughs> but for now, that should bring us to the news. Swedish furniture giant IKEA announced this week that they have bought TaskRabbit, the online marketplace used to hire independent contractors to do odd jobs, from cleaning to dog walking to moving. The purchase was fueled by IKEA's need to further bolster its digital customer service capabilities to better compete with rivals like Amazon, which has stepped up its home goods and installation offerings. The purchase is IKEA's first step in the on-demand platform space. Okay, I don't get it. Really? I think it's kind of interesting. I don't... How many times have you wanted to hire someone else to put Ikea furniture together? Exactly. That's the whole point. <laughs> That's the whole... Yeah. First of all, never. Because you don't buy Ikea furniture. No, I used to buy lots, not much anymore, because I have furniture now. But I used to buy Ikea furniture, and then, you know, after a few years, it eventually breaks. You buy more Ikea furniture, and at some point, you realize if you're going to live a long time, you're going to buy different furniture. But I bought <laughs> lots of Ikea furniture. See, there's very few things that I can start, and, like, they're, like, not that a thing. And then I finish, and they're a thing. And I do it right, and it pretty much always works. And IKEA furniture is on that list. So I found it kind of satisfying. And I'll give you one more fun fact. People who build IKEA furniture like their furniture better than people who don't build it. They did all these behavioral studies. They call it the IKEA effect. And what they found is like if you give someone the same furniture, they buy it in a certain way. You either give it away or you let them purchase it. 
and they don't build it, the building of it gives them an affinity and a love. They, they, they have a false sense that they were part of its creation. It's like they painted a painting. Okay, but nobody's going to have to buy, you know, no, task no, and that's services. And surely yes. this fills some sort of hole in Ikea's offering, which is like, I could see a lot of people being like, oh, I don't want to put, I like, I hate putting this stuff together. I never buy from Ikea because it's just such a pain to have to put the furniture together yourself. So, but is that the main synergy that these gig-based task folk can build the Ikea furniture for you? Everybody offers this. Home Depot offers this. Lowe's offers this. Amazon now offers this. Everybody has an option when you buy this stuff okay. to like get it installed, get it pre-built, white whatever. Glove. I thought uh, Ikea yeah, already the white did that, glove though. service. Everybody's got one of these. I don't know. Yeah. I think what Ikea, to my understanding, Ikea had a delivery at one point. You can get it delivered Oh, now. it still does. So I was at Ikea in April. And actually, I probably could use that service because one of the things still is not put together. And it's October. And it's Adam, in my I hallway. I for you. If you need a tiny <laughs> Allen wrench, I have six million at home. <laughs> yeah, but I vaguely remember that I think installation was an option, but maybe it was just for appliances. I'm not sure. Yeah, they definitely offer it. I think the problem is that the reviews of their own service are very, very low, whereas task <laughs> rabbits are very high. Ah, so they offer it, but then they're not doing a good job of it. Exactly. So they need to acquire somebody who is doing a good job. Task rabbits, like you do a request for task and you get bids, right? You can get people to do anything, right? Yes. Like people get people to wait online for iPhones for them, for example. Because right? <laughs> you want to stick a human in a place you can't go and be, and then people will say, I'll charge you $612 to wait in that line for your $6 billion phone. People people do this, but not not nobody named Jay Hanlon would ever. I would never hire there. a person to stand in line for me. That would make me super uncomfortable. <laughs> super we uncomfortable. just had a task rabbit bring some of Joel's personal items from the Trello office. Over here last week, actually. Well, I, I'm sorry, use, using company funds? Is this something we have to report to anybody? Or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there is another company entirely that does the waiting in line thing. Oh, a dedicated line waiting company. Because how do you compete that with someone like who's a, a very narrow that's all market? But well, they wait in like different kinds of lines. Yeah, like, all different kinds like of lines. Like movie lines, Broadway, Broadway show lines. Yeah. Broadway show lines. Okay, right. so that's. This actually, this is starting to sound like a Monty Python skit. Here are all the lines that we support and like all these other lines that, no, I'm sorry, we like, just don't deal with that. Could I bring them with me to Disney World <laughs> exactly and then they wait in line for. Oh, wait, exactly. actually, Disney already sells that service, right? You just pay extra for that. Oh, wow. That is weird. Okay. No, the person doesn't wait in line. You get the watch and you they scan it cut, and it tells you right? what time to come oh, back. Right, and then you come right. back at yep. that time and you cut the line. Yeah. Great Adventure had that too, six months. Yeah, they all do this. Which is why Ikea bought TaskRabbit in order to compete with Disney. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. Fun fact, there is an Ikea in Orlando. So I could go to Ikea and then Disney in the same day. Wow. Or yeah, sounds really you could have a TaskRabbit do it for you. <laughs> <laughs> they're like i'm on the matterhorn now it's fantastic and you can just like live it through them that's right all they gotta do is just send me a picture to prove that it happened anyway so <laughs> i don't know i don't what do we think about this i think it makes sense okay i mean i don't know about the price or anything like that i mean at some price it makes sense okay well anyway ikea's bought task rabbits so now they can help you turn that little hex wrench while you hold the other thing with a <laughs> screwdriver you have to supply yourself and then you'll realize it was like facing the wrong way. You have to kind of oh, peek in wait. the hole. And... Let me say something about hex wrenches. I should have done this for a tech review. Okay. By yourself for 30 bucks or something, I got a little motorized screwdriver. Oh, yeah. Yep. From Lowe's. And it came with a little hex piece. And now assembling furniture takes like one fourth the time. It's amazing. Like stop using the stupid little Allen keys and turning yep. them like a fool. Get yourself a little motorized screwdriver. It pays for itself on the first installation and if you already have a standard size drill you just need bits you don't you don't need a dedicated motorized yeah Most it's hard to work. get a full-size drill in some of oh, these things this yeah, is like a little yeah. it's just a little thicker than a screwdriver and it there's one great. i forget which major brand it is but there's one i highly recommend that it sounds so over-engineered but it's awesome it's like gyroscope based <laughs> it sounds so dumb except what it is it's like a, it's just a handheld with just a driver so it's not a drill and like you're like why the hell did you need a gyroscope what it lets you do is you just tilt slightly one way and it turns slowly, and then you tilt your arm more in that direction, and it turns fast. And so it lets you adjust to like the, I don't know if torque's the right word, but like so you don't over tighten. And you can reverse without even most of the good ones. You have to flip one switch and then press the button again. This one, you just, it's all very, it sounds dumb, but like it matches your mental model. You're literally turning it the way you want it you to You know go. what? Knowing how bad I am with like motion controls in Mario Kart, I would not trust myself to use that at all. <laughs> My only conclusion from that is I want to play Mario Kart.
Okay. Do we have any more news? We do. Google is now joining Apple in declaring the headphone jack obsolete. The newly announced Pixel 2 will also be eliminating the 3.5 millimeter output. Google <sighs> attributes this decision to, and I quote, establishing a mechanical design path for the future. <laughs> that wow. level of arrogant pretending we invented this is usually only done by Apple, who of course invented this, <laughs> which is hilarious. Ay, ay, ay. This does seem to match thus far. Apple's made some crazy moves and some bad mistakes, but in general, when they have said, F it, you don't need this anymore, and I'm getting rid of it, and the whole world is like, are you crazy? We all use that now. They have pretty consistently been within like a year. Everyone's like, yeah, they were right. Like that we could cut that out when they're cutting things. What I understand is that there's two reasons to do this. It's not because people actually don't need headphone jacks or don't want headphone jacks anymore. They're trying to convince us that that's true, partly so they can sell us more expensive wireless ones. But the real reasons are what? It lets you make the phone thinner, right? Like they're starting to run up against like fundamental thickness of the, the wires atoms, coming atoms in. Atoms have a limited height. Means that, means that that is what's limiting the thinness of the phone. And then also waterproofing, right? Every right. port you have in becomes a obviously a waterproofing problem and everybody wants to have waterproof phones now. So like that's what I understand is like the real design constraints driving this. And it makes sense if Apple's running into those design constraints, then Google's running into the same design constraints too. There was a guy I saw on YouTube, the video was going around a couple of weeks ago, who modded his iPhone 7 to add a headphone jack. So apparently there is enough room in there because he did it and he'll show you how. Wait, like an actual <laughs> headphone jack or is an it the one with the drill? An actual functional headphone jack. It was amazing. I don't, yeah. wow. Okay, because I saw a video like right after the phone came out where somebody just literally drilled a hole through their iPhone. <laughs> it's easy to make a place you can put a headphone jack. That's <laughs> yeah. not the same as having a headphone jack. No, this guy had like some custom circuit boards made and everything, shoved all the parts around. It was quite a project. Very impressive. I haven't actually tried them yet. Are the wireless ear pods, earbuds, whatever they're called, actually any good? Because I've heard they're uh, awesome. not so them. great they're reviews. So good. They're I awesome. just got them and I love them. Awesome. Being, having wireless really good. headphones is the greatest thing I've ever I can't, I can't even imagine going back to wires anymore. Completely agree. The thing you have to, you, you look ridiculous. They look like earrings. <laughs> oh yeah, it's awful. <laughs> but once you get over that, like, or old enough to not care how you look, the sound's pretty good. I never cared about why. I'm never like, oh, I'm running so hard, Rex. Like, I never needed that. The freedom is nice, but like, there's a lot of little things. Like when you have them in, right? And you're like, won't they run out? Like, I'm like running out of battery. But what happens with these is they run down, it like makes a noise, it warns you. And when they're getting low, what you do is you, you pop one into the case. And the case is a self-contained battery that's almost always charged unless like, if you ever charge it. The case will charge one. The whole thing, you don't have to tell anything. It recognizes you have one in. It flips both channels to the one you have in. In like 15 minutes, the other one's totally charged. You pop that back in. The first one hasn't run out. Like Everything about it is really slick. They're nice. It's not as good as my old. I had a pair of Bose earbuds that were noise-canceling. Yeah. And that was wonderful because here in New York and on the subway, it's so loud and I get... There's a lot of noise to cancel. Yeah, I get really bad migraines, especially from some of the noises from the subway. It really sucks. So I got these really great Bose noise canceling, but the wire and there's this little like heavy thing on it where you turn on and off the noise canceling. So it was just getting in the way, especially if you have bags and everyone in New York has like a million bags. So they do. True. I'm telling you. Fun fact about New York. Yeah. So I gave up the noise canceling. They're not as good, but it's so amazing not having to worry about a wire. And you just okay, pop it so, in, and it's so worth it. So this is becoming one of those things that everyone made fun of, but once they tried it, it's actually pretty awesome. Oh, well, yeah. I have Beats Wireless. I can't do the Apple. They don't fit in my ear properly, unfortunately. Yeah, so. I can't do most earbuds either. So that's the problem. If you like the Apple free headphones, free, that come with the $6 million phones, those fit my ears perfectly. So I love them. My AirPods never pop out. If you didn't like those, these are no better. They come in one person's ear shape, which is mine. So that's nice <laughs> Well, I'd just like to say, if they're uncomfortable, then you know, you'll know you sell me no good. But I know some people who had a problem where the Apple standard headphones would always fall out of their ears, but the AirPods work fine because you don't realize it, but that wire is tugging on them constantly. Oh, it's the weight. We don't... Oh, interesting. Yeah, and when you don't have that there, they'll stay in your ears a lot better. Huh. Interesting. Well, you've gone and wasted another hour of your life listening to the Stack Overflow podcast, episode 118, recorded Thursday, October 5th, 2017 at Stack Overflow headquarters in New York City, home of Dwayne Reed, a local Big Apple mainstay named for the iconic original store on Broadway between Dwayne and Reed Streets. 
Well, the sign's name for that. The store is really just a Walgreens with a different name outside, so snobby New Yorkers can pretend they'd never shop at a national chain. <laughs> this podcast has been brought to you by Oracle. Go to developer.oracle.com to learn about all the ways Oracle supports developers like you. And the pasta arm from the same people that brought you the whole home central vac. Stop lugging a canister vac up and down stairs. A central vac makes every room a vacuum. All you need is a 23-foot hose that weighs slightly more than a canister vac and in a more awkward form factor. Our audio engineer is Carlos Hernandez. Audio editor is David Greeley. Technology concierge is Michael Rosa. Producer is Jess Pardue. Executive producer is Caitlin Pike. On behalf of David Fullerton, Jess Pardue, Ilana Itsaki, and that uncle you have who puts random Bob Marley lyrics in the comments of every Facebook post, I'm your host, Jay Hanlon, and your homework this week is to write down three specific things you are genuinely grateful for each night. They can be small things. It takes about two minutes, and doing it for just three weeks improves happiness that lasts for six months after you stop doing it. Try it. There's science. Goodbye. Seriously, when I was sick, like this past week, I was this close to getting TaskRabbit to go to Arby's for me and then bring it to my house. Have you ever eaten Arby's? Because yes. I don't understand that story. I worked for Arby's. <laughs> my first job was Arby's. What? And I still love it. Mind you, I lived down the block from Jess and I was like, hey, if you need anything, let me know. I'd be happy to slide it under the door and then run. <laughs> Which brings us to... Am I supposed to press a button? I'm going to pretend a noise just happened. That's the news. I'm having a tough day. You know, there's a lot of bad transitions. Yeah, there's no no song for Constitution. But for now, that should bring us to the news. Oh, Oh, hang on. You know what I'll do next time is I'll stop trying to control the sound with my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a single transition I haven't blown today?